I'm Steve Head, and this is Captive Eye. Hi, everybody. On this episode, we're going to talk about Hiroshi Teshigahara's 1964 film, The Women in the Dunes. And joining me to do so, of course, is David Clyler. David's a former artistic director at the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Brookline, Massachusetts, and former professor at Babson College. And also joining us is writer, producer, director Jean-Paul Ouellette. So let's get right to it. The Women in the Dunes. David, JP, thanks for taking the time to talk about this film. Very excited to uh, uh, go deep, as it were. Well, it's a film we're talking about, as we're sure to explore. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when Dima asked me about doing the podcast, the first thing I thought was, does this qualify for uh, Diabolique? And I think it does. It, it, I mean, it doesn't initially say to me, you know, horror film, but this is a very disturbing contemporary story for its time and um you know as as i got into you know more more reading about the film i i I realized that uh this this does have the uh the sort of disturbing transgressive kind of themes that uh, that do work for diabolique you know so i'm a little more convinced like man the deeper you go into this into this film the the more psychologically disturbing it gets it has many of the things that uh, that a horror film may have it has hints to ghosts to demons that's true to dystopic yeah. post-apocalyptic world you know uh, that it has it has a lot of these archetypal elements it doesn't deal with them the same way that most horror a horror yeah. film specifically would Mm-hmm. But it does want it does have an edge that this is a horrific situation. Well, that's certainly true because it's anyways on a more cerebral level. It's sort of an existentialist horror story, and yeah. Uh, yeah. and the whole idea of entrapment and not being able to escape that's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, you do have a film that has the seeds of a nightmare in it, and right. uh, yeah. how it resolves itself it's up to us to figure out. Yeah. But yeah, so it. it sort of qualifies just to do a quick summary for those who aren't familiar with the film it's about it's a story about an entomologist who um uh is visiting a uh, sort of a remote area of japan uh by the shore and uh he's looking for bugs he's looking to make a name for himself in uh his chosen profession so he um basically researching in these sand dunes looking for beetles and um uh, while he's doing this, uh, a villager, a local, comes up to him and uh, inquires about what's going on. What's he doing? Uh, the man, who pretty much renames uh, is nameless throughout the whole movie, says that uh, you know he's a teacher and he's just you know doing some research. And he thinks the guy who's questioning him is like an inspector. Mm-hmm. Uh, but little do we know that uh, he's kind of representative of this uh, village. That has a different well, but plan the, for him. no, it's the, yeah. the the villager who approaches him yeah. is wary because he thinks the entomologist might be an inspector. Oh yeah. And yeah. Once he finds yeah. out that he's not an inspector, it's okay. Yeah. And then says, you know, where are you going to stay? And the the entomologist says, well, I'm going to go back to Tokyo by train. And the guy says, the trains are gone. You're too late. Yeah, he's already. And then the offers thing. to find him some place to stay. To which the entomologist says he likes staying with local people. It's pretty much a setup. 
yeah. where he's led to this woman's house and she is at the bottom of this like sort of chasm-like uh, hole in the sand dunes. Where the house is. Yeah. Uh, so they introduce him to this woman. Uh, little do they know that they, they pull the ladder up and he's stuck in this house with this woman for an indeterminate amount of time. In the bottom of the pit from which he cannot escape. Very true. And it all too much becomes visually evident when he tries to climb, actually climb the sand dunes, and it just keeps breaking down around him. It's it's like he's being sucked back down into this uh, abyss. Yeah. Very much. Visually. That's interesting about you using the word sucked into the abyss, because later on when he tries to escape, he gets stuck in quicksand. So he gets sucked into the... There are all kinds of ways which some of these motifs play themselves out. Mm. Yeah. Um as I was reading up about the film, I was intrigued by the idea that um, in the 1960s in Japan, there were people who apparently just randomly disappeared, uh, political dissidents. So I'm wondering if perhaps this story uh, by Abe is a response to these things that were going on in society at the time. In other words, people on the edge could just be taken away by society and and nobody would be it could know. be although once again maybe what we need to do is go back and look at uh, Koba Abe himself mm-hmm. uh, who was a man without as he said without a home yeah, he was born in Tokyo mm-hmm. he was uh, born in Tokyo as a child shipped and then his father who was a doctor dragged the entire family to Manchuria in Japanese China mm-hmm. at the at that mm-hmm. time uh, which was a very strange place to live um, and then he and then his mother lived in his mother's home was in Kyoto, and so I mean it was a very confusing story in some ways uh, for him as a child. Uh, as as the World War II was approaching, he was a pacifist and realized that if he did followed his doctor and went to medical school, he would be absolved from going into the military. And as he said, all of his friends who went into World War II. Were di- died, so he had, mm-hmm. so he was definitely hugely against the war and against this violence, and out of that he joined the Communist Party, which is probably one of the most important things about him, is that he became a com- a young communist, um, which slowly he realized the con- the Japanese communism did not care about artists or writers. Um, sure. And over the course of his time with the Communist Party, they were constantly admonishing him, and he kept trying to quit, but they would not allow him to quit. And Hmm. in 1960, around 60, 61, 62, he actually wrote a paper with his friends that forced them to, to expel them from the Communist Party. Well, it's interesting, JP, about your saying that because if there's any among multiple things that go on in this film, there's a strong sense of displacement and disorientation. So yeah. this would make sense in terms of the autobiographical aspect of this thing because throughout the whole film, the, the basic situation is a displacement and there's a disorientation throughout the film because of the whole way. One of the great things visually about the film, you have a sense of proportion. Not quite sure. You don't know how big the sand dunes are when we and uh, it's disorienting. Actually, it, the whole film. Yeah, you there's know, a lot of close ups where we don't really yeah. see. You don't know really what the close ups about until later. You don't know if it's a mountain or a or a molehill. And so, to yeah. a certain extent, there's a kind of a way that we feel also some sort of sense of displacement, mm-hmm. even though we're focused on what's this guy doing in this place and what's it all mean. 
uh, there's still a, a strong sense of disorientation and displacement. You use the word nightmarish. I like that idea that like this is a nightmarish situation of people in contemporary mm-hmm. society. But he's also, once again, he's he's so biographically, there are two elements here. A man who could never fit in a place, which is the author. Yeah. And his own feeling that he's never had a place where where he was settled. In fact, he said he was terrified of settled places. <laughs> so could and, you could you say that the main character is Abe? Um, in a sense. Well, if you if you also if you take the other side of his biography, this whole this whole thing about bad reaction to his communist mm-hmm. party. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think you could you could say he is making both a statement about his own life mm-hmm. and how he feels about his place, and also how he feels about um, this collective idea of you must follow these rules. So if he's sort of like ejected from the communist party do you think that this character in the film in in a way is like ultimately doesn't mind that in other words being in this hole actually is kind of not bad because i get recognized for the small things i do well but he's also free from free from society in many ways or the society to which he he finds oppressive Mm -hmm. and i think you know we in the beginning, we see a character who came to this seaside barren place to get out of Tokyo. But also to, get, to do research that can make an individual mark, an individual contribution. So that's kind of it. You yes, get away from it all. But there is this yeah. kind of way. There's a professional pride uh, that he has in wanting to uh, make his own mark. Whereas well, which, which, me, would give, which is why he left, because I have no meaning in, in, the, in, in Tokyo. The larger thing, yeah. So I'm outside Tokyo looking right. for a way to go back and have meaning. But then initially, uh, the woman who has no kind of professional personal ambitions in that mm-hmm. way, she's just a cog in the wheel. Uh, there's a sort of an anti-capitalist thing in here well, somewhere. Well, she had a purpose. A right? I mean, her, her, uh, he learns that her husband and daughter drowned in the sand dune. Well, sort right. of. And, um, and so she thinks that this guy who's been brought to her home is like a gift from the villagers. Well. Know? In a way, this is a replacement husband and coworker. Yeah. So I'm. So I think she's part of the machine, as opposed to this oh, is yeah, the mentally, story of the man. Sure, so sure. this is the story of the man. Sure. She is part of a machine that is doing all of this stuff to him. Sure. And and so it's like he becomes assimilated. Well, but after he, a certain amount of time. I, I I think we he they're saying that very specifically that he was a teacher in Tokyo. He assimilated in as best he could. Mm-hmm. But he still needed to make some way to distinguish himself from other people. Yeah, that he felt undistinguished. Yeah, and I think the film uh, allows him to find out that he's going to do that for you'd do that anywhere in the world. That that's what hmm. life is. Well, the thing is, you know, even though the film's called Woman of the Dunes, he's yeah. the person with the character arc in the film. Uh, he goes from wanting to to resist being entrapped. And then he, there's an acceptance uh, of that, and but in the in terms of the acceptance, he's not just a cog in the wheel the way she was, but he's found his own thing, the water, in, you know, water in the sand, which may or may mm-hmm. not mean anything, but it's worth researching on his own. He's, he's find a way to to make his own mark with some sort of discovery, mm-hmm. uh, in some way. So there's a, a kind of way his such character does have an arc, and he's able to find something that we know from the beginning is could be personally fulfilling to him. Yeah, which is part of his 
choice to it isn't certainly not like sort of a uh, same was in the zeitgeist at this time, like Jean Paul Sartre's No Exit. Uh, in mm -hmm. some way, oh, like Exterminating Angel, no, or yeah, any of those. But to some ways, even though I think it's, it's ambivalent, he somehow finds himself in doing this. It's a possibility of reading it. We don't really sense that he's trapped forever. Mm -hmm. uh, because he's kind of there willingly. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if he really, really applied himself, he could get out of it. Well, the thing is, but at the end, it's important. Beautiful. I mean, the villagers, when they take the no woman way. off, they leave the rope down, and he chooses not to go up the rope ladder. Hmm. It's a choice. Now, it, once again, this is also part, part of this whole story is this is an early Japanese surrealist writer. Mm -hmm. And this was a guy who was influenced very much by Europe and went to Europe and studied everybody from Dostoevsky to Kafka to Nietzsche and one of his personal favorites, Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. <laughs> so, so, well, that. you can certainly see the Kafka influence. Well, definitely know. the yes, the European surrealists, and maybe Poe with the Crow. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, there's to a certain extent um, the the just being an indistinguished cog. And even Kurosawa's Akira from 1952 had this guy who was just a, an anonymous bureaucrat, huh. and so. I think that's why, like, there's a lot of Dostoevsky's characters that are like that as well. So, as you said, he learned Dostoevsky. Mm -hmm. This character is certainly reacting against that. And so, yeah, there, there are a lot of analogies here. And it's, again, uh, uh, there, there might be something more specifically Japanese, say, that I would understand. But it's not uncommon in other Japanese films that I know. And, Maybe it's uh, kind of more disturbing in the sense of, like, the, the things that you don't see. In other words, um, I found the film kind of melancholy because there's a large amount of futility to the whole endeavor of what, what they're doing. If it's even an endeavor at all, it's just kind of an existence. Yeah. Um, is it about futility of things? Well, it's definitely, an, <clears throat> I mean, obviously there's, there's two elements that are totally, that are very much more Western existentialism. Hmm. You know, that one was like Sartre Camus picking a mythic, Situation. The myth of Sisyphus. Oh, right. Being yes. Here uh, rolling the is, boulder up the hill. And then using it as a, in a surreal context to show an existential life. This is very common yeah. in the, the European writers that, that is obviously the influence here. You know, the woman, I think she knows that she's in this situation. Her job is to create, is to dig out sand and deliver it to the villagers or so get it up to the villagers, but she knows that the sand is uh, heavy with salt, so it's not uh, quality enough to actually be used to build something. So she's kind of just turning a wheel. So, well, the I mean, trick is that's the, the, the whole key moment for her character is she is sexual. She is, yes. she is enticing, even though she's not, she doesn't think of herself as beautiful. She has an attractiveness. They, the film does make her seductive. Yes, yeah, and the, and and, and very erotic way. scenes in this film. Sure, sure. Uh, in having, fact, I think that there's a moment but, in the film the I mentioned, mo the, but the, the moment female gaze, but the moment that is the most telling is as she explains the situation, the truth about what's going on. Hmm. It's her ability to admit the sand that we're selling very likely is going to kill people. But it's well, my if job. She, if she no, no. But that that, the moment that she says, "I accept this," we understand. We have a whole different view of her as a character in the story. Well, he has hope. 
that things will change. But if he gives, if she gives him this ultimate idea of futility, she may, I, I think she, that she's afraid that he's going to try and really try and leave. And but she'll she, be but at that point, she did give him the yeah. entire, see, that's the moment of total futility that even what okay. she's doing giving up yeah. is worthless in many ways because it's ultimately it's going to destroy society. Yeah, and that it is, you know, a great conundrum uh, with all of that. But yet, what is interesting, I think, visually about the film, not unlike other films of sort of an, well, or even Freudian mode, the yeah. mixture of sand and water. Uh, oh yeah, in the yeah. Film. And even the way the yeah. sand is filmed, I mean, clearly we have sterility or death, perhaps, with sand, mm-hmm. uh, because don't forget, her daughter and husband were killed in a sandstorm. But when we see lots of shots of the sand, it ripples like water does. Right. And there are sometimes, sometimes you it's look at the film, yeah. film is extraordinarily shot. Uh, it's, it's it like, really is visually yeah. stunning. Mm-hmm. And the camera work is just is so incredible. But you do sometimes look at the sand. It looks like ripples of a wave, that kind of thing. It's just, it's just yeah. perfectly well, done. And yeah. there is the dream sequence where you do have water yes. rippling over, over sand. And what one of the other shots you talk about, and a premonition. I think that uh, there's a couple shots of the woman before you actually meet her, as if this is something that's on the horizon. Well, even visually, uh, well, there's a. Are you talking about his reference to the woman in white in the early? Uh, yeah, there's 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 that's a reference to a different woman. That's a that's a woman in Tokyo, I believe. No, that's right. And I always refer to it. And he's talking about his disconnection with women. In that scene. Like, that's why I say there's probably no direct connection, but like a Fellini woman in white. But hmm. don't forget, the film is not only visually stunning, but as JP said, it is, it is sexy. Uh, it's not exactly this film overwrought with existentialist ideas. It's just incredible to watch. And uh, among the better scenes, among the, the hotter scenes, when they make love. And what yeah. is really interesting in terms of the visual motif that's in the film. When you look at their bodies, sweat and sand intermingled. Mm-hmm. The two, the water and the. Uh, and don't forget, he ends up discovering water, mm-hmm. right? And which is, I think, meant to be a positive. Uh, and, well, I think somehow he's able to draw it from the sand. It right. is, there's a yeah. process of. Uh, well, he thinks he's found a new process. Of yeah. and he's. I think the operative word is the thinks he does. We still don't yeah. know, but it's still for him. I think it's part of his reason for staying. But it is in the way the whole film works. I mean, God. I mean, you can remember the, the leading man here. Uh, he was the star of Hiroshima Mon Amour, made by a mm-hmm. Frenchman, Alain René, a few years earlier. But again, for those of us who saw it in 1965, it, Hiroshima Mon Amour was there because when there's a lovemaking scene there, there's a mix of sweat, but what we think is nuclear fallout dust on their backs. And so you see this image in Woman of the Dunes 50 years ago. It may, There may be no connection whatsoever, but... At least when I was seeing it, I was reminded of the mixture of sweat and dust mm-hmm. from Hiroshima and more. But clearly, the way this whole thing, go, the whole film works, you have that mixture of water and uh, and sand. And he goes from digging out sand to finding water in the sand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a, pro- a progression of some sort. Right. But they're also living. He's in a place that is rotting, even yeah. though it's in a desert, which where no, things were not normally rot. In fact, mm. you know, that's the whole idea that uh, milk milk in a pyramid lasts forever is all, merely because there's no bacteria but, in, but I think in with, a desert. But I think in a desert, mm-hmm. things will dissolve more quickly. Mm-hmm. That, the, that the situation that they're in, which is kind of like a hothouse drama, is actually, because of the environment, I think, very tenuous. 
which which is also sort of dramatic. I mean, mm. uh, the the dunes fall apart around them. Uh, the the house the house is in, in is of itself is kind of uh, dry and rotting, falling apart. Like right. like this situation could implode. Well, obviously, at some point it did because it killed her. Yeah, yeah, her husband and child. Yeah. And I, th I think it makes just in in the sense of just a, a platform for the story. It's it's um, it's a dramatic stage. Um, would you would you consider this a survivalist movie? I don't know. No, I'm not sure. I, I mean, once again, the, there there are elements that probably were stolen later by people who were going, "Ooh, let's do post apocalyptic <laughs> films." And guess what? There were some yeah. really cool things in this one yeah. um, because definitely the mix of and this portraying the villagers who come and annoy them and taunt him. Yeah. Um, appear, the, the wonderful scene where they appear at the top and many of them are wearing oh. Oh, the, this assortment scene, of Japanese and World War II goggles and, and then demon faces from traditional... Like uh, no theater masks. Well, yeah, exactly. But, but uh, you know, designed to make it... I even know more demonic. It's a demonic festival with the beating uh -huh. of drums and the, the sexuality of that whole thing sure. was to make it a demonic ritual, uh, which I think is one, once again, one of the things that gives this a horrific feel just right. the way. And, and I'll add one more, which is early on um, when I, when I saw the film, I kept thinking of films like uh, Onibaba. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And um, um, uh, the, the the Snow Woman, and that in many mm -hmm. ways she, when we first meet her, she's a ghostly dead character. You know, yeah, I think um, when we spoke the other night, you made the point that is the woman could she actually be some sort of a uh, an apparition or a figment of his uh, crazed imagination? It would have have to happen, or or, or a dead woman at the bottom of a pit. I mean, you know, we yeah. don't know. <laughs> Uh, and in many ways, that's also that she isn't there as a real character. She's there for her meaning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other one, the stunningly beautiful one, is that as she sleeps, her body becomes a dune, a series yes. of dunes covered yes, that, with sand, saying, which yeah. is stunningly beautiful. I'm, and definitely the, the director of this film, you know, had this stunning eye for what you could what does the idea of sand and its meaning and, and its effect I, yeah you know i think hiroshi Teshigahara brought an elegance to this movie in mm -hmm. in the way it's uh, uh photographed um he was a sculptor he was a uh a potter and uh, and i think um he was also schooled in floral design mm -hmm. uh, the arrangement of flowers and uh the composition of the film the the uh, the photography is very um, is beautifully composed. Mm -hmm. Oh, know. very much. Well, clearly, they, the cinematographer they the shots had add a lot to it. It was a great collaboration between writer, um, you know, writer, director, and, and cinematographer and composer and composer. Oh, yeah. right. I, I, right. I, I, yes. Although composer. I don't, I'm not sure if the the uh, cinematographer did all of all four of the films that the, the other three did right. together, but he did at least two of them. And he, but he was better known for a documentary filmmaker, which hmm. often can mean you spend your time looking at stunning visuals. You know, this may sound crazy, but I thought as I was listening to um, Takamitsu's score, which is very um, subtle and, mm -hmm. and also jarring, um, it reminded me of a film four years later, I think, Planet of the Apes. 
I did. Well, once again, so. this was obviously a film that was seen widely. I mean, this was a really successful film yeah. internationally. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, to the point where, yes, it was up for the Academy Award, BAFTA Award, Khan. And then actually they brought Peshahara back and said huh. the next year and said, we're putting him up for best director in the world. Right. So it got one year, it got the Japanese notion for best uh, nominated for best foreign language film. But the, it didn't get released at that point, the way a lot of foreign language films don't get released until after they've been nominated. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, the director got put up for best director. Uh, two years in a row, it got Oscar nominations. Yeah. You know, if somebody was watching this film for the first time, and uh, and they had to pinpoint what date they thought this movie might be from. Would you think that might be hard to do, considering there's a certain timeless quality to this film? Uh, yeah. Uh, although, once again, you're sort of trapped by the fact that it is black and white. And it is shot in one, uh, one three three. Mm. So it has that sort of gives a lot of it away. But in what you're saying is, no, if you were to reshoot this exactly the same way, just do it widescreen and do it in color. Mm. Yeah, it would look like it was made yesterday. And yeah, you know, the, been, the, you know um, once again, it is a timeless. Yeah. It's a timeless story. It's shot in a timeless way. It was limited by some of the technical facts of, of filmmaking. I mean, even in terms colors. of like the, the the wardrobe and the sets, and it's it just seemed um, like like this could have been early seventies, and, and I would have been okay with that. But I think Somebody that's said I, I think that's con- I think that's a conscious thing yeah. on the filmmaker's part mm-hmm. in that. He shows up in sort of a traditional, um, basically explorer's outfit. Yes, has, is timeless. It's been, people have been wearing this since you know 1800, and they're going to be wearing it for another hundred years. Mm-hmm. It's the same outfit that everybody wore for hundreds of years. But what's he end up? At, you know, what's he wearing at the very end of the film? Quite right. different. But yeah. and then then yeah. then moving into the fact that we, other than the rowboat which does have a huge prow, make it older looking. Um, oh, that's right. He falls asleep in the... He falls asleep yeah. in that rowboat that's half in... The, uh, that's drowned in sand. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the fact that the house is... The, ho- the house we see... I mean, we do get images of city, but um, the house we see is, yes, it's mm-hmm. the timeless Japanese shack. Yeah. shack. Mm-hmm. And the villagers and the the woman, yes, they dress in a style that has been in, true in Japan for what two millennia, and probably and still can be seen on the streets for another millennia. You know, it all has to make you wonder, like what happened in society that these villagers said that we are going to do this. How did we get? How did they get so disconnected that uh, this is allowed to happen? I think that's a you know? that's been a very much that's been yeah. a a. Ever since the West entered mm. Japan, Japanese waters, I was watching this the has Hills been an Have ongoing conversation yeah. in Japan about how we are being affected, how our culture is being affected mm. by outside influences, and obviously the biggest outside influence here is you have a communal collective of a village who is selling off to a large corporation somewhere. And I think that's very that's intentional. Right. That, yeah. that, that this is a collective of people who will do anything to survive, you know, be, including keep a woman at the bottom of a pit. And then when she's lonely, you're kidnapping somebody and shoving them down there. You'd think that he, he thought that at some moment somebody would recognize that he was missing. 
because of the way he left his apartment when he, uh, uh, you know, went on this expedition, uh, that maybe some sort of, uh, uh, um, you know, societal official would 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 would, or would the appear and say, you know, we're going to get you out of here. But there's no there's no authority that uh, is in a certain mindset well, no. that's going to get him out of that. He does list the authorities who should be looking for him. Right. The teachers association, the school, the PTA. He lists them. Yeah. Who should be looking for him. And they just don't. They just, you know, collectively. And he's making he's making a comment about how insignificant the, mm-hmm. the individual is in society because these are either corporations, communal groups, societies that mm-hmm. are not as concerned about the individual. And yeah. that's a major theme here. This is why I think um, Teshikahara cuts to the crow because the crow's <laughs> eye is – Perhaps omniscient, but it's also a, a, not, a dispassionate interest in what's going on. Well, you know, the crow it's, it's is perhaps... the only only character in the film who's free. Hmm. He's also the only character who doesn't get caught. So, do you think these these characters have willingly given up their free will? Like, the, I'm not well, sure about willingly giving up free will. I'm not. Oh, there's an acceptance of the fact they can't do anything about it. Yeah, uh, and which but, is very much. Presented by the woman. And yep. then we assume that this is obviously what the rest of the villagers are in basically the same position she is. Mm-hmm. They're slaves to whatever they're dependent upon for the capitalist, the, the, the concrete manufacturer, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That they're, they're, that's what they're, again, cogs in the wheel. And, you know, our, our hero, if that's the word for him, uh, mm-hmm. is finding a way of finding something individual, even how small that is or how tenuous it is. I mean, I think it is that to be sure that we can't think of the end of the film as a triumph of free will. We, we, it's, it's, huh, yeah. We can't yeah. think of it that way. That's an interesting point, though. I think his, his, like, he likes his circle of influence, but it's very small. Mm-hmm. But if he goes outside this existence, he's a nobody. Well, we don't know I, I think it's sort of the opposite, isn't it? That he, his Maybe circle, somebody. where in Tokyo, his circle of influence, he felt like a nobody. As to well, yeah, because he, he didn't have any influence. Right. But in this uh, hole, he does. No, he doesn't. With her, over little things, he... he he's, he over himself. He's, the same way when he was lying in the, you know, as, as well, the Well, ultimately, maybe he has no influence, but I think he feels like he has some influence in this, in that small No, no, situation. I think he feels that he has hope. Uh, okay. Instead, it's not influence. <laughs> he has no influence over anything. He is a victim of the way the world works. This is a very existential view. He has of life. influence over the little bug that he teases at the beginning of the film. In fact, well, he's hoping laughs. he's hoping that you the know, bug will sadistic. be the bug that will help him be somebody. It's not influence. He needs the bug. It's not influence over the bug. He needs the bug. But now he's found the water, which may or may not lead to something. But at least it's a hope. I think right. the word hope is probably Absolutely. the best. It's not a conclusion. It's not. It's an ambiguous ending. Yeah. yeah. But like I said I think he does have the character arc. So is it? He's the one who's on a journey. Nobody else, you know, is on a journey in the film, mm-hmm. and he makes a journey. And uh, does and he lose hope? Though? He finds something. No, the whole point. He gains hope, and he gains. He went. He went to the in the beginning. He arrives at the seaside with a hope of finding something. And he ends the film with finding something that he has the hope will do exactly what the bug did. So mm-hmm. he, he he actually finds himself in the same place that he was at the beginning of the film. But in both situ- – at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, he has hope. He loses it in the middle. Well, and that, I think, is his arc is that, that he does lose hope. 
He believes he's totally lost and kidnapped and trapped. But even where he's trapped, he finds hope. And, you know, one can interpret these things in a way one wants to. It's a question of what to take into account, account when you're doing this. Yeah, but at the end of the thing, a symbol of life is water sure. amidst the sand. So you have the water. The future for him mm. is in uh, the symbol of death mm. and and uh, sterility, anyway. And so you have, um, you know, all those juxtapositions and incongruities in the film. Uh, and I, uh, I think I like the idea that, that what becomes meaning for him, meaningful for him, is in that situation with the woman and not outside. Ah, but that, that's the, the the interesting key at the end is there's no woman. Yeah. The trick is, is that the ending of the film is him alone. The woman has been taken away with what could be his child or could be and, the and child she, and she he's about to go lose. Because her, her effect, her very ability to affect anything is is in that place. But she's also, know? see, she's in the hole and she stays in the hole because she's terrified of what who she would be outside the hole. She, I think she thought she, she would be just another ugly woman who wouldn't get noticed. Right, exactly. She she would not go to Tokyo. She does not believe that if she met him other than in the hole, he would even look at her twice. She And she says, she expresses all these things. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, she had a husband and child. Hmm. She lost them. She has the possibility of this world coming together again with this man. Who, even though after she, you know, like, like people often do, I'm going to tell you all the negative things about myself, and if you still like me, it's real. Hmm. And he does that, but he's, you know, there's no choice. I think they but also to like do that. But then she, when they, when the villagers haul her out with the child in her belly, hmm. the question is: Is she going to be the one who comes back, or are they going to kidnap some other woman? And shove him down there, and the whole thing will repeat itself. I think it is, yeah, because we don't know that. No, no. And then, so the end of him is he's found some sort of mm. triumph in his discovery, yet he's still in the pit. We can't feel, you know, we haven't said, well, gee, this is a great place to live. And we don't know whether the woman's coming to go back. So you still have an image of him being in solitude and in the pit. On the one hand, he's got his discovery, and he's made a choice. Uh, on the other hand, it is not exactly the kind of thing like you don't you don't get the sense. Well, maybe it's the existential thing. Where, yeah. What does freedom consist? Is it the physical entrapment or is it the sense of personal freedom? He has control over his mm -hmm. own experiment here. Uh, and or, I think or is it, uh, in, in a small way certain like little minor gratifications, like they like being rewarded for their work mm -hmm. in a minor way, or mm -hmm. being recognized for something, and that just. Other minor Might questions not that, happen in the outside that aren't important. But he's writing this thing. How's he going to get the world out to the uh, to the <laughs> the word out to to, to, to the, the world at large? That kind of thing. Those are minor things because the film. You're right. There is some attempt at making it a realistic situation, but ultimately the film. The word parable has been tossed around with this thing. It's sure. It's certainly yeah. a symbolic film. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. So the idea of taking this thing as a. I mean, after all, if you take if you describe the film to somebody. Uh, you know, what's the film about? This guy, he gets dumped into a sand pit where his whole job is to uh, 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 the sand. get the sand out that falls in every day. It's so symbolic that it could be, it just could maybe go endlessly anywhere. Maybe there's major points, but at the but same I, time, but I don't it's think, interpretive I don't, in a sense. But I don't sense. think it was ever meant to be real. And no. I think, once again, I you know, once again, it, I think if you look at Abe's 
personal world, his biography, doing it surreally, he gets away with a lot of things. Because I, what was it, three months before they published this book was when he finally escaped from being a member of the Communist Party. Hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. that so that obviously he is making a lot of statements about a lot of things in his life without actually making them real. And surrealism allows you to do a lot of that. Obviously, a lot of things in this film don't make sense. Actually, well, I, I'm I'm laughing a little because like 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 many things, ultimately it's about a search for meaning. Oh yeah, all like, all situation. existentialism is either a search for meaning or a search for God who can give you meaning. Mm. Or the futility of a search for God. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> On the other hand, it all sounds very heavy, but at the core, I think one of the reasons the film was so popular, it remains very, it's still, you've got the sex scenes, you've got the incredible cinematography, and the scene where the villagers, uh, in order for him, he's, what is he done? he's negotiated a deal, he can take a look at the ocean, yeah. right. and in exchange for that, if he can get out just for a little bit, they have to watch him make love to the woman. And he, you know, fundamentally tries to rape her. Uh, that's a horrifying scene. Oh yeah! With all the drum beats and the mask and the way that's lit at night. Oh my God! It's a really an incredibly it's done scene just by itself. So well done. It's and uh, simply as a piece of going to the movies, you come out saying, scratching your head, what was all that about? But getting from point A to point B, getting through this over two-hour film, it's it's not a bad journey for the audience. Uh, and it leaves some things to talk about. It's the kind of movie, a lot of them were in the 50s, blow up one of them. Mm-hmm. You sit there, you go out, and you have a few drinks afterwards and talk about the movie for hours. Uh, and, <laughs> and this uh, is one you well, can definitely do that Well, with. this also had some, you know, some powerful moments. Yeah, yeah, powerful moments as far as that is essentially, that that's rape humor. Uh, horror. I mean, it's a horror scene. It, you know, oh, this it is. is. And, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of this whole idea of being, you know, trapped, uh, kidnapped, trapped forced to do things uh, is a horror story and and whether it's a sl- you know there are obviously horror goes from monsters to fantasy to slasher to um, just the horrific things man can do to man this is more like the ter- horrific things man does to man as far as horror goes and it was filmed that way uh, certainly it's the most rapidly edited sequence and all those it's going to uh, close-ups of all the people with masks rapidly edited together with a drum beat mm-hmm. it's a great scene I mean, wow. Yes, I remember when I first saw the film, I said, oh, my God, this is like, it's horrifying. Mm. And not only for what's going on in the scene, but even for the way it's filmed. You know, it does work simply, you know, uh, it's a work of entertainment in some ways. I guess it, I would say it's also put psychologically the shows the pressure to which a band can be driven right. to do mm. something that is not morally in his character. Right. I would say to viewers, don't be put off by the fact that uh, it's it's a long movie. I mean, some scenes, uh, you know, they, they linger upon the images, but I think that there's a there's a creative purpose, and ultimately it adds up to some pretty some pretty stunning imagery and some uh, the dramas. It's uh, just very impressive. There, very actually, impressive. we're we're also talking about the fact that it was shot on a studio set. Yeah, because yeah. because the fact is, and. Uh, this was mentioned, I forgot, by one either one of the filmmakers, writer or the director, is that uh, there is no such thing as a dune, sand dune like they had in the pit. Mm. Sand will not, you cannot get steeper mm-hmm. than 30 degrees. Oh, uh, yeah. And so yeah. this was, I mean, a lot of this was sand 
plastered on board <laughs> to make this, this this set look right. And a lot of it also would be if you really want to show a guy trying to climb up, you just tilt the camera, <laughs> tilt him, and it looks like it's a lot steeper than it is. Yeah, because a lot of the film, you do lose, just like even the opening shot. You, you, that's why I feel, I mean, it's, you know, we were set off talking about the way that uh, the author had a sort of a disconnected life. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the film, we have a sense of disorientation, yeah. uh, perspective and the things like that. And I think visually, we are sort of made to feel the way the central character does as a member of the audience. We, we're trying to get a sense of an establishing shot of what this is like. We finally do get it. Mm-hmm. But um, throughout the film, there's, the, there's some of the camera work. We do lose a sense of the size and proportion of things. There are sometimes I was looking at the Sure, film. sure. I think as viewers, we're looking for a grand establishing shot. Yeah. And it turns out to be not so grand. It's a small uh, it is true. Place. As JP said, maybe physically there's no place in Japan that looks like that or wouldn't be able to stay that way because, as we all know, there's sandstorms and things like that. Things fill in. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, there is a kind of a, okay, we're st- you don't look at this film for verisimilitude. You just don't. And I think that's part of its the power. The sand, it's invasive. It permeates everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Well, David, JP, thanks for taking the time to talk about the film. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. It's a film yeah. we're talking about. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can listen to all of our episodes online at diabolikemagazine.com. And uh, if you have any questions about the show, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at steve at horrorunlimited.com. I'm Stephen Slaughterhead. Until next time, so long, everybody. (laughs) 